Amen. Be seated, please, and take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, as we continue our journey through Matthew. One of the side benefits of me getting sick in the fall was that you get an Easter sermon on Easter. It wasn't planned. God had plans. I would remind you as we go to the Word, this is uh, written by the eternal God. And as a result, this is His eternal Word, and it was written for you so that you can say today, as this is read, this is for you, this very moment. God's Word, Matthew chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And said, Greetings. And they came up to <laughs> they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken in the reading of your word. Would you speak in its preaching? Give us faith where we have none. Give us stronger faith where ours is weak. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Those sentences that you kind of remember for the rest of your life. 
usually inconvenient ones that intrude into our normal daily living. They intrude into the business of our lives, intrude into our day-to-day. It may be a sentence like, Sir, I'm sorry, you have cancer. That's a bad one. It might be a positive one. Honey, we're finally pregnant. After how many months or years of trying? It might be a boss that sits you down and says, Sir, I'm so sorry, ma'am, I'm so sorry. The business just can't justify your position anymore. We're going to have to let you go. It might be something so joyful as she said, yes, we're getting married. These are the kind of moments in your life that they, they define the rest of your experience in some fashion. Either good or ill, Positive or negative, convenient or inconvenient, doesn't ultimately even matter at some point. They're the kind of moments that shape everything. You you can't ignore them and they just kind of disappear and go away. You can't ignore cancer and trust, it'll be fine. It doesn't work like that. A lady cannot find that she's pregnant and the husband and wife just choose to ignore it. It doesn't, (laughs) doesn't work that way. I mean, I guess you can ignore it for nine months. After that, it's a little bit obvious. Matthew, in his gospel, has, and he's very upfront about this from the very beginning, been trying to build a a similar kind of moment, not not in one sentence, but in in a series of portraits, a series of stories, true, historical, real stories, telling us who Jesus is in a way that challenges us demands that we do something with it. This Jesus is the King of kings and is the Lord of lords, and he's not what they expected. In fact, might not even be what we prefer. But he is God Almighty in human form. And that is a truth that no matter how much you try to cover it up can only be ignored for so long. The story that Matthew's telling, the true portrait of who Jesus is, it's something you can ignore while you're alive. But you can't once you die. In fact, actually, it's designed even for us now to have kind of this moment of wrestling to understand who is Jesus? Who does the Bible say that he is? Matthew has been presenting it really in light of the idea of a king. That's one of the various themes that he's used, the one I've leaned into the most. To kind of contrast that Jesus is the king of kings, but he's, he's a different kind of king. And I guess for many of us in South Carolina-ish, we, that's a positive thing. We tend to not always view politicians quite as favorably as some. The idea of a, a messenger sent by God taking the form of a politician, maybe not such an exciting thing for us. Instead, we have Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who rules and reigns 
always has, and always will. These 15 verses that we will consider today, we're going to look at from that perspective. Who is this King Jesus that is demanding your obedience? Demanding your belief? The one you cannot, must not, should not ignore. First, we'll look at verses 1 through 4 here as we kind of begin. The stage has been set at the end of 27 last week, one of our two back-to-back mega-sad sermons. Jesus is put to death. He gives up his own life on the cross, yielded his spirit in verse 50, and dies a real and true death. He's put in a tomb purchased by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, a tomb that is guarded by the Romans so that the disciples couldn't come in and sneak and steal the body away. Now, they know, it's weird, <laughs> everyone knows Jesus has been saying he's not going to stay dead. He's been very clear about it. In fact, they even know which day it's going to happen. It'll be the third day. He's been very upfront. I'm going to die, but I will not stay dead. Death is not a big enough enemy. Chapter 27 ends kind of as the night sets. They go into the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, and it's miserable and dark and, well, seemingly hopeless. We know the rest of the story. We pick up in chapter 28 with a a group of women. Matthew only names two. We know there are at least five. We don't know all of them, but we know there's more. And they've gone to tend to the body of Jesus. They know he's dead. They know they couldn't care for him the previous day because that was the Jewish Sabbath and purity laws didn't allow for that. But they went to take care of the body of their Lord. Now, it had been wrapped in linen and it had some spices sprinkled upon it, but it had not been preserved. It hadn't been through any of kind of the processes that they would use to keep a body from decaying and would almost kind of you know, dehydrate and petrify even more than rot. They go to do something that is grim, it's gruesome, to care for a, a body that's been sitting. <laughs> In the Middle Eastern heat, for 48 hours. You know that this is happening at really kind of daybreak. They begin just before the sun has uh, risen, and as they're making their journey, kind of the sun comes to light. It's the earliest in the morning that they could get there. And you have a group of women that we know, kind of other gospels and such. This is not a happy occurrence. These are ladies, in essence, marching to finish the rest of the funeral. It's as if Jesus died so late on Friday night, they didn't get to finish taking care of him the way they would normally handle their dead. They get to the tomb. Boy, that's unexpected, isn't it? That verse 2, behold, that's interjected there. You're supposed to read it kind of in that, and kind of grab your ears and uh, exclamation point, you know, pay attention. 
They approach the tomb and we begin to see the joy of heaven leaking into creation. The delight of the uncreated God leaking into the created order. Behold, there was a great earthquake. Again, here, not just a little rumbling. I don't know if y'all noticed, this year we've had like more earthquakes in, in South Carolina than we've had in like the last 200 years or something crazy. They're wondering if we're setting for another big one in Charleston like we had in the 19th century or whatever it is. Not the earthquakes that we have here, where you only find out about it three days later or if you're actually on Twitter and the people down in Camden are like, man, why is my house shaking? This is a massive earthquake, right? The kind these ladies are probably having trouble staying on their feet. At this point, on a list of like most unpleasant things you can imagine, being in a graveyard at daybreak, going to bury your Lord, and an earthquake hits. Like this is at this point, I'm questioning all of my life decisions. I don't think I really want to be here anymore. And as the earthquakes, we know, boom, two angels descend from heaven. Matthew highlights the one that's talking. We know one sits outside, one sits inside the tomb. The stone that's covering the very tomb that Christ is buried in probably rolled a little bit with the earthquake, but probably it probably just falls over. And you have this just kind of almost comedic moment where the angel's sitting on it. Now, again, if you don't remember your Bible knowledge or Bible history, angels are not the adorable little naked babies that we have in all of that, you know, Ann Getty art and stuff like that, right? They're not the little things that you want to go up and grab the little chubby cheeks and be so excited to see them. As best we can tell from the scriptures, they're either creatures made of fire or creatures made of eyeballs or creatures made of both. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say any of those options are not options I'm really thrilled about. There's a reason why every time we see them, people are petrified with fear. And what you have is this creature made of fire and light sitting on the stone dangling his feet waiting for the women. A spectacular juxtaposition of death and life. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning. Again, he's like he's made of fire. It's too hard to look at him. He's too bright. His clothing is white as snow. That's not talking about the colors that, you know, now we can wear. It's Easter. We can switch to our white attire. No, no, no. This is, again, he's clothed in light. It, this is the glory of the throne room of God kind of leeching into creation. And if the the kind of comedic juxtaposition isn't fully completed, verse 4 does it. The man who's supposed to be dead is alive and gone, and the guys who are supposed to be alive are virtually dead with fear. What an announcement! 
Right? What an announcement. Some of us, we, you know, maybe you like to be a little bit of the center, center of attention, and when you enter the room, you kind of make yourself known, right? You, you make a, a presence when you come into the room. What an announcement. Maybe you, you know, make a little bit of a noise. You uh, loudly address a friend across the room. I had a roommate in college that used to just trip horribly every time, and everybody turned to look at him, and that just made him feel good about himself. Interestingly, what we have here instead is the uncreated God is showing the created order how excited heaven is. Christ the King is the King who is celebrated by heaven and earth. Heaven itself, God Himself is celebrating who Jesus is. God Himself is celebrating the victory that Christ has accomplished. God Himself is celebrating. He already knew it. It was planned out before the foundation of the world. But that death has been defeated by Jesus. Total overwhelming, complete victory. Now, interestingly, at this point, the created order hasn't figured it out. (laughs) All the things that are made, we're like, "Mm, not sure. The angels know. I suspect the demons know. The devil knows. We don't know in this part of the story. And so God introduces the joy with an earthquake with angels, his messengers of light and fire, proclaiming the good news. This is where we kind of have to start, again, intentionally tuning our ears to what Matthew has been saying throughout the entirety of the book. That Jesus is a better kind of king than what you can imagine. He's a better kind of king than what you could even hope for. He's the better kind of king than what you could even really comprehend. He's so good a king that God himself celebrates his reign. That's pretty marvelous thought, isn't it? God himself celebrates the reign of King Jesus in his kingdom. And friends, what this is introducing is largely kind of in the backdrop going to be brought to the forefront in just a moment. The good news of the reign of King Jesus. And the good news of the reign of King Jesus is this, friends. That though he is that powerful of a king that he can defeat death, Though he is that good of a king that he's victorious over the most evil of things, he chooses to love people like you and me instead of destroying us. You see, the reality is Jesus knows what you've done. It's not a mystery to him. Jesus knows those secret thoughts that percolate in your heart, the ones that you would be mortified if anybody knew. Jesus knows the bits of you that even you're terrified that your spouse would find out about. And the interesting thing is, rather than turning judgment upon his people, he shows mercy and love and affection. 
You see, that's the interesting thing, the part we probably forget in the story is that's why the stone is even rolled away at all. You might be, honestly, you, you've probably read this passage a, a million times and you've just kind of categorically, because we oftentimes are taught accidentally in Sunday school, that the stone had to be rolled away for Jesus. Wrong. The stone had to be rolled away for the ladies and for the disciples who would show up later. Jesus is long gone. He left. In fact, actually, we know he left his clothes behind with him in the uh, tomb. He didn't have problems getting out of the tomb. He's the Lord of life. He doesn't have problems walking through walls. He does that actually after he meets them in Jerusalem shortly after this. No, the interesting thing is that what Jesus is doing is he's inviting his people in to be a part of his ministry and to experience it and to know him and to believe him and to trust him. Roll a stone away. Let the ladies in. Come in and see. I love that's actually what the angels do. One of them sitting outside on the stone, swinging his feet. One of them inside seated right next to where Jesus was laying. The first one says, come on, go look at where he's laying. I think it's Luke that we actually have the other one's speech recorded. They're inviting God's people in to be a part of it, to to see and to believe, to understand. This is for you that your faith would grow. This is an amazing thing to contemplate. Jesus didn't have to do this part. He's already raised from the dead. He's already up and gone. Instead, what he's doing is building up his saints, ministering to them, encouraging them, loving them, strengthening them. And friends, he's he's never stopped doing that. We know he lives for a short spell physically on this place, in this planet, in this time, in this body, and then he ascends in that body to the right hand of God the Father. And friends, he's, he's never stopped loving you. He's never stopped caring for you. He's never stopped ministering to you. He's never stopped interceding to the Father for you. That's why we read that very lengthy Chalcedonian Creed. What is that getting at is that Jesus is that perfect mediator for you to God and for God to you, and he's never stopped. You see, that's what's being declared in Matthew chapter 28. That's what the the resurrection is, is that Jesus is the victorious king who is your representative to God. Something he's never stopped doing ministering to them, caring for us, watching over us. But again, with the power that is unrivaled. I love how the angels say it, verse 5 and following. Don't be afraid, don't freak out, right? Creatures of fire, yeah, don't, don't panic. What you're about to hear next is more important. I would think a creature made of fire would be the most important thing in the room at all given moments, but that's not the case here. I know that you seek the Jesus who was crucified. He he was actually killed. He was dead. He stayed dead until the third day. Really, truly dead. But inconveniently for you at the moment, he's not here now. For he is risen. He's raised himself from the dead. 
He gave up his spirit in verse 50 of the previous chapter, and he gave it up so that death would win for a time, but so that death would not win for all time. So that the risen king would be the representative king. And that the result would be he would have a risen kingdom. We're going to sing hymn 706 at the end of this sermon, if it ever ends. It has some of the most profound theology anywhere in the hymnal. This is my funeral hymn. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death itself is dead forever. That's what he's accomplishing in these brief sentences is that it is a promise to his constituents. It's a promise to his people, those that are in his kingdom, that though your body dies, it will not stay dead. Though your soul passes to eternity, it will never die. And it will be reunited with your body when it is raised. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death itself is dead forever. You see, what Jesus is sharing with us is his victory in such a comprehensive, in such a real, in such an overwhelming fashion that we never have to be afraid of death ever again. Because it is past tense conquered on my behalf. Which, here's the reality, unless Jesus comes back sometime soon, every one of us in the room will die. You can't run from that. Doesn't work that way. Right? There's no, like, death evasion, like tax evasion or something of the sort like that. You cannot get away from it. You can pretend. You can ignore But much like those opening illustration sentences, its reality intrudes into our lives. Where people that we know and we love are taken from us too early. And as much as we might want to pretend like death itself does not exist, it does. And it's all around us, always and all of the time. And our two choices are to lose to it or in Christ to be victorious over it. Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death itself is dead forever. Now, if you're going to be honest with yourself and honest with us and honest in the room, if we're kind of really being real at this point, parts of our culture love the idea of being true to ourselves and real, If we're going to be real, we would say these promises are so wonderful. If anybody was going to give them away, they would never give them to people like me. I mean, if we're going to be honest. We're not the best and the brightest, though I love you. We're not the most beautiful. I think you are. Not the funniest. You make me laugh all of the time. Sometimes at you. Often not. All joking aside, if somebody was going to give away gifts this great, we would never be the people that would deserve them. There are people that are smarter, 
There are people that are better. There are people that do more good works. There are people that are more faithful. There are people that are literally better at every single thing that I do than me. And the same for you. And if we were going to be honest, we would have to say, man, this is a great deal that this is being given away. I just wish it could be mine. Interestingly, though, our king, (laughs) he gives his gifts to the unexpected. In the most unexpected ways, he's, he's generous in a way that's it's almost offensive he's so generous. In verse 7, he tells the women, <laughs> right, let's pause for a moment and just consider these women. This is not like a list, like the who's who of kind of like the best and the brightest of a culture. I mean, the lady leading the way in the story was possessed by demons, not exactly kind of like, you know, the picture of, of, of brilliance in a culture. By and large, these are women that, as best we can tell, are rather poor. They just kind of faithfully were around Jesus and really brought nothing to the table in a time in which women were overlooked and their gifts were underutilized. These would be representative kind of in the story. These are the nobodies. A person who used to be demon-possessed, who's overlooked, with a group of other ladies who would be overlooked, led to do a job that nobody in their right mind would do, in a place that nobody in their right mind would be, for a person that even the disciples were running from. And interestingly, who, who does Jesus choose to use and choose to interact with? It's, it's the lowly. It's the undeserving, it's the lowly. He's he's so generous. The angel stands up, verse 7 tells them to stand, go, go quickly, leave the tomb, go. Go tell the disciples he's raised from the dead. Behold, he's going to go before you to Galilee. I love this. This is one of those great moments in Scripture that he tells them he's going to meet them in Galilee, and he does, but Jesus himself is so excited he doesn't wait. He meets them in Jerusalem first. He's so excited. In fact, actually meets them that night in Jerusalem. He doesn't give him a chance to get to Galilee the next day. He's so eager to be with his people. So they depart, verse 8. They go running off to tell the disciples they do that. The disciples go running off. They get busy with all of the busyness of the busy things to do. And the women left behind overlooked, unimportant, meet Jesus. The resurrected Christ, the first humans he meets are these. The ones that in the story would never be included. They're not important. Oh, but they are because they're his. Because he loves them. Because he is faithful to him. Because he delights in them. These faithful saints that serve their Lord get greetings. And I love how words carry so much meaning. 
but they can't carry enough meaning. Right? I tell my children all the time, I love you. And they understand that I love them, but they think when I say I love you, I mean this much. <laughs> right? As a parent, you, know, you, you mean bigger than your arms can reach. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. No joke they did. Right? No joke they did. They're falling apart. This is the kind of crying with joy kind of moment that you get to see. Overwhelmed. And the resurrected Lord. Don't be afraid. Go and tell others. Friends, our King has not changed. He's still the resurrected Lord. But the good news is that He loves the lowly, He loves the unlovely. He loves those that should be overlooked and unimportant. He loves those that shouldn't be part of the story of history. And that's comforting because that means he loves people like you. And he loves people like me. And in fact, actually, beyond simply loving people like you and people like me, he freely offers that we would be His. In the history of the church, that was called the gospel. The good news that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of glory, the dead Savior and the risen Lord, would offer freely to His people all of the benefits of being a part of His kingdom. You don't pay taxes. It's not your obedience that determines how good of a citizen you are. He invites you in to receive His goodness and to enjoy His glory. And friends, that invitation has not changed. In fact, just a couple of moments from now, that's what's going to be seen here at the table. That's the next image that we kind of get in this kingdom relationship is it's a table wherein Jesus fellowships with his people. Some of you, and I love this on Easter Sunday, some of you are going to go and have family meals. That's what used to happen kind of all over the South. And a big family meal on Sunday. Some of you won't. That's good. Praise God. Love you too. But I'm going to lovingly say the family meal that you're going to share after the service is smaller and paler and weaker and lesser than the family meal we're going to share together during the service. Because in this supper, we feast on Christ and with Christ and receive the benefits of His salvation, receive the benefits of His resurrection, receive the benefits of all that He has done. He gives to us freely. And interestingly, again, I love how you get to see it. Even in the command with the supper, what does he tell us to do? He says, take and eat. Receive this thing that I'm giving you and enjoy it. That's the terms of the deal. Receive what Christ has done and enjoy it. He's the king that's supposed to be shared. His kingdom is supposed to be kind of contagious. It's supposed to spread. 
And I, I love how Matthew doesn't stop the story there. He does end his book a bit abruptly. It's not as shocking kind of as Mark, but Matthew does end rather quickly. But he includes kind of one little additional nugget for us along the way. The contrast between the two realities, he's actually highlighting the fact that at this point in the history, everyone knew it was true. The Romans knew it was true. That's why the guards were so scared. That's why the guards then run back and tell their commanding officers. The Jews knew it was true, the high priests and such. Um, The scribes and the Pharisees, that's why they actually wanted the tomb guarded in the first place. They knew it was true. The options are, however, to deal with that truth with love and obedience and submission or to pretend that it's not true. That's what they do, don't they? Verse 11, the guards go back. They tell their commanding officers, they tell the chief priests all that had taken place and what happens They assemble the elders. The elders get together to decide what are we going to do. We're going to pay off the soldiers. Soldiers, here's what you have to do. You have to tell everyone that the disciples came and took his body in the middle of the night. Maybe they'll believe that. I mean, when these guys are being murdered over the next 50 years, crucified upside down, cut in half, Maybe people believe they stole the body and are dying horribly for no good reason. We'll tell everybody that it's just not true. We'll we'll tell everybody a lie so that we can all believe the lie together and maybe that'll be enough. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And and I, I love to contemplate, like, what do you think it was like for those guards? Right To go home and know they've got a couple hundred bucks in their pocket? And we're like, maybe I can forget the angel. Maybe I just was hungry, right? I hadn't eaten enough. I need a Snickers bar. Except every time I close my eyes, I see him haunting me forever. You have to think those guys probably were useless for the rest of their lives. Knowing that was true. And trying to run from it. Friends, here's the reality. We know this is true. We know it's true because the Bible tells us. Some of us know it's true experientially. We've seen Jesus change our lives and live differently. Interestingly, we know it's true even by the way his enemies act. But much like those sentences at the beginning, this is a truth that demands a response. The same way you don't ignore, you're pregnant. The same way you don't ignore, you have cancer. You don't ignore that Jesus raised himself from the dead. The choice is, will we be those people that bow the knee, receive his good gifts, worship the resurrected king, Or will we be those people that try to figure out how to make the truth in the back of our brains shut up? Romans 1 calls that suppressing the truth by unrighteousness, that we do enough evil things that it tries to make it quiet. 
And friends, I know there might be some of you in here, we have a large crowd today, there might be some of you in here today that you find yourself in that situation where you think it's true. You might actually even know it's true, but you're running. And I would just lovingly say, I love you so much, please stop running. Meet the resurrected Savior. Ask him for help. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we have sins forgiven in the resurrected Christ. Forgive us and give us your spirit, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.